Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 65th program in this series. I'm presently in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 12. What's going on is that we have the Feast of Passover, and everyone is expected to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover in accordance with the law of Moses. And so people are traveling from all over the country in order to get into Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas in order to participate in the festivities, especially on the 14th day of the month, which is when the Passover lambs are going to be sacrificed and everybody has the Passover meal that evening. Now, the chief priests, the Pharisees and the high priest, the religious leaders in Israel, they had made the decision after Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead, they made the decision that they needed to find a way to kill Jesus. And I explained this in the previous messages. But what they decided to do was try to recruit the people to participate in capturing Jesus and having him executed in some way. Going back to John chapter 11, verse 57, it says, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. And I explained in the previous program that people knew where he was, and it appeared that they did not report Jesus to the chief priests and the Pharisees. So the chief priests and the Pharisees who issued this command, they believed that they had this relationship with the people, that the relationship between them and the people was that they would issue commands to the people, and the people would follow their commands. That appears to be what they believed. Of course, the people did not feel that way. It appears that they did not comply with the Pharisees, with the chief priests. They didn't seem to agree to this kind of a relationship with the religious leadership there in Jerusalem. But this does express an attitude that the religious leadership had towards the people who they were governing, who were in their lives, that they looked at the people as people who were just simply there to obey their commands. So this was a good opportunity for them to discover that this is not necessarily how everyone is going to relate to them. They don't necessarily feel that that's why they exist. They probably don't like the idea of existing for the purpose of obeying whatever commands these religious leaders give them. But this also put them in a little bit of an awkward position because if they failed to report Jesus, well, then the religious leaders might have something that they could hold against these people. They could say, now you knew where Jesus was. Yes, you did. And you failed to report to me where he was. You didn't 
You didn't tell on Jesus, did you? You didn't come and explain to me where I could find him, even though I ordered you. I commanded you to tell me where he was, where I could find him, and you didn't do it. That could very well have been the attitude that the religious leaders would begin to have against these people. So what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus didn't do anything unique. He didn't do anything that would make it difficult for people to find him. He was in Bethany. People went to go see him. And on the next day, after he spent some time with his friends there in Bethany, on the next day, he went right to Jerusalem, out there in the open. It says in John chapter 12, verse 12, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This is what Jesus did. He showed up in public. He went right into Jerusalem, and everybody saw him coming. So the chief priests and the Pharisees who had given this command would see, there he is. No need for him to be reported. No need for anyone to comply with their commands. You want to know where he is? He's right there. He's right there at the gate, coming into Jerusalem. And there is a great multitude of people who are there. And I explained in a previous message that this would be the tenth day of the month that the people are arriving in Jerusalem. Many of them would be coming in order to get a Passover lamb. The Passover lamb had to be selected on the 10th day of the month, and they would be coming to town in order to purchase those lambs that were pre-approved by the priesthood at the temple compound. They would also be there in order to get set up and get ready for the 14th day of the month. Finding lodging was a little bit difficult, and so arriving early was a good idea. There were a lot of reasons why people would come on the 14th day of the month. This is the day when the Passover lamb was selected, and this is the day that Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, is selected as the Messianic King by the declaration of the people who see him coming. Now, if you consider the way that he came, the way that he arrived, in a very public way, the way that he came effectively presented a message to the religious leadership There in Jerusalem, it was a message of, you want to know where I am? Here I am. You want to seize me? You come and get me. Right here, right now, I am entering Jerusalem in a public way. You say that everyone here is supposed to report to you and tell you where I can be found so that you can come and seize me. Well, here I am. Come and get me. But you have no valid reason to seize Jesus. He has not violated any law. He has not sinned. He has not done anything that would justify them seizing him, let alone putting him on trial or even executing him. He had done nothing wrong. He had committed no evil. So if they even dared 
to approach him with the intent of seizing him, with the intent of arresting him, then they would expose themselves. They would show the whole nation that they themselves are not righteous, that they themselves violate the law because they have no justification, no valid reason for arresting Jesus for anything. And so when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he was effectively telling the religious leadership, I dare you, here I am, you come and get me, I dare you, go ahead and show all of these people who you really are, what you're really made of. Show these people that you do not obey the law of Moses by arresting me, you will violate the Mosaic Law. So go ahead and do it. When you think about the risks that Jesus was facing, he resurrects Lazarus from the dead. All the leaders are after him. They're commanding people to report where Jesus can be found. They're telling everybody that they're going to seize him. I mean, this could be scary for a lot of people. This could be frightening. And when Jesus was having dinner with Lazarus, they might have talked about this. Lazarus could very well have asked Jesus, so, Jesus, what do you think we ought to do? What, what are you going to do? All of the authorities are looking for you. They say they're going to seize you. They say they're going to put you on trial. They say they want to kill you. What do you think we should do about it? And Jesus could have easily replied with something like, eh, don't worry about it, Lazarus. I'm going to go walk right into Jerusalem tomorrow, right up front. I'm going to do it in a public way. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows that I'm coming to include the religious leaders. If they say that they're going to arrest me, that they're going to seize me in some way, well, let's let's give them their shot. Let's give them their chance. I'm going to go right in there and see if they'll really do it. That's what he did. He goes right in there. And they don't take him. They don't seize him. And everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. How excited are they to see Jesus, especially considering the threat to his life, considering the commands of the leaders there. And the people knew of the corruption within the religious leadership. So to see someone stand up to them in this way, how excited would they be about that? They were so excited, they were ripping branches down off the trees. That's how excited they were. Look at verse 13. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. How do you think they got those branches? They tore them off the trees and they went out to see him. And then they cried out, Hosanna, which would be correctly translated as salvation. Now, it's an exclamation, an exclamation in the sense of a demand. Give us salvation and give it to us right now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That's what they were saying. And was Jesus coming with a great army as the king, coming in to conquer Jerusalem and take over and potentially do battle with all of these religious leaders who want to seize him and kill him, perhaps even do battle with the Romans and drive them out into the Mediterranean Sea? Is he coming on a great horse with an army? No. In verse 14, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's how he comes. He comes in a way that everybody knows that he's the king. Everybody knows that he's the Messiah. And he invites his opposition to go ahead and try to strike him down. Go ahead and try to seize him. Go ahead. He's not riding on a mighty horse. He's unarmed. He doesn't have a great escort of warriors. Go ahead and take him. But they don't. Because if they did, they would expose themselves for who they really are. Unrighteous rulers who should resign their position and yield to Jesus the place that is his. Now, in verse 15, this is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The salvation that Jesus was bringing was not the kind of salvation that the people were asking for. They were asking for salvation from an occupying people, from a people who were occupying them, a foreign people. They were asking for the Davidic kingdom to be restored. Jesus could have done that if he was received in the way that he wanted to be received. And he could have provided them with that kind of salvation, at least for a little while, until the Romans captured him and crucified him for that reason. Either way, Jesus was going to die. He was going to be the Lamb of God, and he was going to die for the sins of the world. That is what he came to do. That is what he did. And through what he did, through his crucifixion and his resurrection, through what he did, he was able to invoke a new covenant that made the provision for the restoration of the Holy Spirit to those who will surrender to him. And that is the eternal salvation that he came to provide humanity with. Eternal life. Everlasting life. The life of God that will dwell within you, that will make you alive in such a way that you will never die and you will always have a place with him among the living. So he did come to bring salvation, but the way that he did it was in a way that the people did not expect. Not even his disciples understood what was going on. In verse 16, this is John chapter 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So Jesus had generated quite a following. But people were there for many different reasons. And regardless of the reasons for which the people were there, Jesus continued to do the work that he came to do. 
Now, the Pharisees were watching this happen. In verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that we are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Well, they had all gone after him at this moment, but that was because they expected him to seize control. They expected him to take power. Here he is. There is obviously going to be a conflict between him and the leadership. So he comes in in a public way. He comes in. He's going to take over right now, isn't he? He's going to provide salvation for us now, isn't he? If he doesn't, then the religious leaders might be able to obtain the upper hand and they might be able to stop him in some way. So let's do it. And let's do it now. And the Pharisees expressed their concern. Look, the whole world has gone after him. But this did not last. This did not last for very long at all. Because Jesus was not going to provide them with salvation in the way that they wanted. He was not going to give them the kind of salvation that they were asking for. He came to give eternal life. In order to accomplish that, he will have to be seized. He will have to be crucified. And then he will resurrect from the dead, invoke a new covenant, and then he will save people. But he will save them on an individual basis, not on a collective basis. What the people were asking him to do was to save the nation as a collective. But he came to save individuals. This would mean that he can save people who are not members of the nation of Israel. Because he's not going to relate to people as a collective anymore. The old covenant was a covenant between God and the collective people. But the new covenant is a covenant between God and his individual children, each and every one, on an individual basis, not on a collective basis. And what this means is that he will be able to establish a personal relationship with anyone in the world. The Pharisees said, look, the whole world is going after him, and they're right. Now he will have access to the entire world, not just the people of Israel. But he will have access to the entire world of people on an individual basis, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. It won't matter. And that's why John reports in the next verse, in verse 20, it says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. What are they doing there? Well, they could have been proselytes. They could have been Greeks who converted to Judaism. There were a lot of Greeks who converted to Judaism over the previous 200 years from this time in history. Because after the Maccabean Wars, there were a lot of Greeks, there were a lot of people all over the place who heard about the miracles that took place during the Maccabean Wars, and they heard the testimony of the living God who saved the people in Israel, who saved the Jews, and they wanted to be a part of this God as well. They wanted to have this God 
They thought, this is a good God. This is a real God. I want this God in my life. I want to be in the life of this God. And so there were a lot of people who began to convert to Judaism after the Maccabean Wars. I spoke about this in the programs that I produced on Hanukkah. And I also talked about this in the programs I produced on baptism, because baptism originated from these people who were wanting to convert to Judaism. Baptism was established as the means by which a Gentile would convert to Judaism, in addition to committing themselves to a life of obedience to the Mosaic Law. So some of these guys might very well have been converted to Judaism, or they may have come just to simply observe, just to be tourists just to see what's going on. And they heard about Jesus, and they wanted to talk with him. Verse 21, Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, this is a unique thing. This is a big deal. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He didn't go talk with the Greeks. They were wanting to talk with him, but he didn't go talk to them. There's nothing to say right now. The new covenant has not yet gone into effect. He cannot provide them with a relationship. He cannot establish a relationship with the Gentiles until after he resurrects from the dead and he can offer to them the Holy Spirit of God, he can offer them the restoration of life so that they might be saved. This is about to happen, but it has not happened yet. And so at this time, Jesus could certainly talk with them, but he would have to address them in the context of the Old Covenant because that was the covenant that was in effect until after he died. So if there was going to be a conversation, the conversation would be simple. Surrender to the Mosaic Law and live in accordance with the Mosaic Law. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will in no way make it into heaven. You will in no way be saved. That was the message that he could give them at this time, but that wouldn't be useful. So he did not spend time talking with the Greeks. The message of the gospel would go to the Greeks later, first through Peter, and then it would blossom through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So this is a way of understanding that this phase in the ministry of Jesus is now coming to an end. The old covenant is coming to an end, and the new covenant is about to be invoked. It is through the new covenant that God will be able to have personal relationships with individuals. This was not possible under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was not defined for this purpose. The New Covenant was defined for this purpose. Jesus introduces this a little bit in verse 24, where he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. It's a way of Jesus stating that God was relatively alone. 
The old covenant did not resurrect people. No one could be made spiritually alive through the old covenant. God did not have living people with whom he could relate to. He did not dwell within anyone. He did not have a personal intimate connection with anyone's spirit through his spirit. That did not exist. And a way of describing this is to say that he was alone. He was alone in this respect. And so just as a grain of wheat would need to die so that more wheat could be produced, so also Jesus is going to die for humanity so that others could be made spiritually alive and he would not be alone. Again, in verse 24, John chapter 12, verse 24, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And Jesus will be this grain of wheat that falls. And I will explain this more in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 65th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I was in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 23. This section of the scriptures is often referred to as the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus. His triumph was over those people who had rejected him. There were a lot of people who would not accept him as the messianic king, But here was a public event when Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem and the people as a whole were acknowledging him as the king of Israel. The religious leaders were wanting to seize him and he made himself publicly available for them to do so, but they did not seize him because that would have been an obvious violation of the Mosaic law. And I will continue into chapter 12, verse 24 in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net thank you